Hello everyone, welcome to Equals, this is Max. Welcome everyone, this is Nabil. Welcome to the second of our two-part special that dives deep into inequality in Africa. We've got a cracking episode ahead. Yeah, Africa past and present, and today we're looking at the present day. Yeah, and what a fantastic episode we just had. I've got to, got to go there. I'm not going to lie, Max. I was absolutely chuffed to see the positive response. Uh, a big shout out to all our new listeners in Zambia. And um, and Max, we've got, you know, we, let's get to the interview in a second. But, you know, this is an inequality podcast. And it's also been a big week for inequality, hasn't it? Uh, yes, it really has. I mean, picture this scene. You leave Oxfam and you become a kind of script writer in the bill. I can see that. I can see that, yeah. You're in Hollywood and you're pitching your big idea idea for a kind of broad sweeping movie and you say right picture this scene global pandemic ravaging the world thousands dying daily climate crisis upon us you've got people up to their necks in subway cars in in, in, in flood water in china but you've also got solid german houses being swept away by mm. the climate crisis meanwhile in the same week cut to the richest man on earth who is bald and looks a bit like Dr. Evil. <laughs> and he he's decided to pick this week of all weeks to launch his kind of penis-shaped rocket into space um, with his friends and then return in a cowboy hat. And and, and that's your idea for the, for the big film. They, the they would laugh me out of the room, I'm sure. Pretty sure you would be laughed out of the room, yes. <laughs> so it has been a quite insane week for global inequality, yep. Definitely. And what insane inequality that we have. But Max, I've also got to say, it's just it's just not that impressive, is it? I mean, 50 years ago, 1969, government landed a man on the moon. I mean, that was impressive. 50 years on, you know, billionaires, they can barely get past the clouds with their mates. What does that say? Yeah, government got us to the moon without microchips. 50 <laughs> years, 50 years of neoliberalism and billionaires can only just get above the clouds. I mean, let's just get rid of them. That's what I say. We don't need billionaires anymore. No, we don't. We really don't. And, you know, back on Earth, they have created big problems. We hear very clearly about the lunacy at the top. But let's also talk about the, you know, those extracted from at the bottom, which brings us nicely to this episode today. Wow, the king of Segway strikes again. <laughs> Incredible. Yes, indeed. This week's episode is about Africa in the present day. We're going to look at macroeconomics. We're going to look at public services, privatization, and colonialism, particularly the colonial aspects of the aid business with which we're very familiar. So that's going to be really good. Absolutely. Absolutely. And what a genuinely absolute pleasure it was talking to Crystal Simeone. Crystal, she's the director at NAWI, AfriFem Macroeconomics Collective. This is really cool, right? NAWI is basically a community of people and organizations there influencing, deconstructing, reconstructing macroeconomics itself. And they're doing it all through a pan-African lens. It's really genuinely exciting. It's the stuff we kind of dream of. And she's previously held a leading role at Femnet, which many of you will know is one of Africa's largest women's rights networks and also at Tax Justice Network. But despite all that, Max, you wouldn't want us to call her an economist, would she? No, because she's very clear that economists need to unlearn their economics if we're going to get anywhere. And uh, as I read this week in, in a great book I'm reading, Economists know the price of everything, but the value of nothing. It's a great quote. That's deep. Very deep, yeah. Should we listen? Let's get to the deep end. Let's do it. Crystal, welcome to Equals. It's fantastic that you're able to do the interview. Uh, thanks for coming on. Thank you, Max. Uh, thanks for having me. 
Crystal, thank you. It really is a pleasure. And I'd love to begin with with a nice, easy start, asking you about mainstream economics. And you engage in these global spaces all the time, right? And you try to carve out a different way of thinking about the economy. Crystal, let me ask, what doesn't mainstream economics get about Africa that it needs to? Well, it it completely invisibilizes the nuance of our history. And that's very, very important to be able to create systems that work for everybody. Our history means that we're not on equal footing. Our history has been one that is super extractive. You know, when people say that we must build back better, build back to what? What was built was never for us, only from us. And so we can't go back to that. That system was built on a neoliberal economic model that is fundamentally placed on extractivism at its core. Something has to subsidize the system for it to work. Usually, that something is the Global South regions or African women or actually women in general. It's on our bodies, on our backs that, you know, economies and wealth is built, but that wealth is not anything that we enjoy in many parts of the world, and that's concentrated in such a few little spaces of the world. There are so many stereotypes about Africa. I mean, if if you had to list your two or three most annoying kind of white man expatriate stereotypes about probably economists they're probably economists let's face it um <laughs> what would you say they they were and and how wrong they are about uh, africa and i'm sure there's plenty few... to choose from <laughs> you're only yeah, allowed to write a whole book i'm like sighing heavily um <laughs> this podcast can turn into therapy at this point it's it's no longer yeah. an interview it's, it's it's now a session of therapy <laughs> yeah this is this is po- podcasters therapy exactly yeah <laughs> It ranges from this like very white liberal feminist thing of like, you know, just work harder, you know, you, you can lean in, just work harder. Yeah, just work harder. As you say, this from your position of privilege where you have all these things at work that you don't even recognize work that are made to work because a system was set up for that to work in specific parts of the world and not everywhere. It goes to representation politics. It goes to an email I got last week from a friend of mine in the UK who got an email from somebody with the reference that said request for Crystal Simeone. And basically, they wanted me to stamp my name on an article that would be ghostwritten um, on climate justice. Not knowing that, I mean, not even taking the time to bother to understand that I don't really work on climate justice specifically. And there are such amazing African women that work on climate justice and they also have an opinion. Maybe you can ask them to write with this idea that they just need to rubber stamp something with a black woman's name to like, oh my God, everything about the power and dynamics of working in global spaces as an African feminist of working in economic spaces as a feminist. There are so, so many. But this complete refusal and sort of agreement to completely invisibilize a history of colonialism and to completely not have a conversation of reparations, but then talk about aid and talk about handouts and always victimize and I'll speak specifically for Africa, victimize Africans and paint them in the most vulnerable picture, paint them as, you know, not having the capacity to think for themselves, not having the capacity to create their own solutions for their own problems. This infantilization 
of all Africans of even if, you know, we can't give you back your money because you will re-corrupt the money again. And like, if we do, then that's our problem, but it's ours to begin with, right? It's the audacity of the OECD to still set up frameworks and, and, and rules that govern global tax, yet so much of the extractive sector is based in Africa and 65% of the $100 billion that bleeds out of our continent every year through illicit financial flows, 65% of that is commercial. A majority of that 65% is through the extractive industry. So the extractiveness that continues to happen and be hidden behind jargon and big words and behind, you know, halls and spaces of power in the global north that discuss us as case studies and as issues I, I take issue with. In the bid to change that, it sort of morphed into development as a sector, as an industry, as a job, where so many people can close their laptops and continue with their world and their work. But so many of us live in this world and don't have the privilege of shutting down our laptops and watching Netflix at the end of the day, because I still have to play the Hunger Games for vaccines for my parents. I still have to drive on these roads. I still have to figure out how to get private insurance because, you know, the public sector doesn't provide universal access to edu- to health or education. It means making sure that I always, you know, have a consultancy on the side to be able to pay for certain things. And so there's so much that happens at the same time. I sometimes just want to lie down, but I can't. Yeah, I'll stop my rant there. <laughs> no, Crystal, I think the rant was perfectly reasonable. But what I like about what you said is just the sheer hard work of living in a developing country and having just moved back here to the UK and seen the difference. Just as you say, just coping with the fact that, you know, there's a flash flood on the way to work in Nairobi and or 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 a Mutatu has crashed or the, you know, you've got to get exact, as you say, you've got to make sure you've got health insurance. And I, I think it's amazing that anything ever uh, gets done and how much we have here in the global north that we just don't even think about you know and uh, i remember being at a workshop in south africa once and we were talking about uh you know community-led committees to organize your water and uh, there was an activist who stood up and said look we didn't fight against apartheid to get on committees to sort out our water in europe you don't have to be on a water committee to turn a tap on we just want taps with water that come out of them yeah nobody's innovating yeah, we don't need entrepreneurs to work out how to clean the toilet. You know, that's so I think there is a lot of I mean, there's a long, long list, isn't there? So I think. Uh... Yeah. And then it's hidden in this idea of resilience, which is really a celebration of you having to live through hardship that you shouldn't have to. But let's celebrate your resilience, which I find so, so problematic. Yeah. You're always really patronizing, isn't it? There's a whole industry dedicated to that idea of of resilience it's uh it's another way to dress up the wounds of capitalism resilience self-help you know build your own school because we're never going to build it for you you know exactly um, or we're stealing or not we're diverting funds so that your government isn't able to do it um and you have to pay debts for a road that you'll never use for the next number of generations but you know be resilient and build your own little school do you think the message is cutting through that in a way that it perhaps didn't, for example, in the wake of the structural adjustment era, is there something different about how the message is being received today? Because in some ways, it you know, it doesn't feel like it. You know, we're looking at the crop of leaders that we have on the continent, for example, in the majority. Yeah, that's a tough one, and it's hard to be optimistic and to see any rays of hope. 
um, because, I mean, living in Kenya and now signing new programs with IFIs, it really just feels like that structural adjustment programs season two on Red Bull. And it almost feels like we've forgotten what the structural adjustment programs of the 80s and 90s did to our economies, completely decimated public services and the narrative that that creates. And so now you have all these young people, I'm not as young anymore, but even for me, I don't remember what it's like to live in a country that has functioning, universally accessible public services, schools, um, healthcare, but even just like who collects our rubbish and water services, everything is almost, almost everything is privatized. And this narrative that private is better than public has really permeated our society, our communities, and that's really, really problematic. And with that, you know, the World Bank and the Cascade approach, where private finance is being sold as our only option to be able to provide for our citizens, but it also creates this very problematic narrative that the African state is incapable of providing for its citizens. Do you think there's at least some some understanding in con- in some countries across the continent, kind of post COVID, of the need to address these issues, particularly of public health? So Kenya, for example, with our vaccine rollout, that has been all public, which has really confused very many upper middle class and middle class Kenyans. For example, suddenly it's like, oh, isn't there anywhere I can just pay for it because that's what we're used to um must (laughs) i line up with everyone like i have to line up at five in the morning at a government facility like do i have to wear three masks and and a screen on top of that like what do i even do so that has been really interesting for me to watch um and really interesting that the government hasn't allowed the sale of vaccines despite the fact that we have you know i mean like i think less than one percent of the population has had even the first vaccine i'm not sure what the numbers are for you know fully vaccinated kenyans but that begins to equalize things in a way that hasn't been done before even just in terms of engaging with public spaces i think has been different from a lot of for a lot of people and taking off this veil that, you know, public services are useless, can't be, you know, can't be trusted with delivering services, quality-wise is so much worse. I think that changing that narrative is a very important first step. And so I'm really, I'm really proud of that. Well, not so proud that we have really botched (laughs) our vaccine rollout, but that's besides the point. I'm I'm trying to be hopeful Mm. here. Oh, it's good to be hopeful. I think another yeah. another, another another thing I've really noticed is, um, you know, a big World Bank uh, um, solution to the education crisis has been these low cost private schools. And again, oh. I think everyone has seen as soon as the crisis hits, you know, how unsustainable that is, and how you know these many of them will not reopen, and you know, it just it's just not a plausible solution to an education crisis. I wonder whether that will also, it, it certainly. It's certainly uh, a lot easier to argue that with the World Bank now. I mean, they can't really say that this is a a great way to deliver education. Yeah, and funding seems to be be redirected to more pressing COVID issues, for example. So what does that mean that our educate the education of our children is, you know, to the graces of what funding is available or not? And then what 
does that mean, is it actually then a right for African children to access education? I think is a question. But also, you know, being home and, and being stuck at home and having to have different conversations with different people. A friend of mine who's a neurosurgeon told me this really hopeful story of a child who came in and had a tumor removed. Um, this tumor was found by the teacher in the public school of the little village that he lived in. She lived in, sorry. And the teacher noticed her handwriting was slightly off told her parents, parents took her to a doctor, doctor referred her to the National Hospital, National Hospital found the tumor, ended up having surgery done, everything was, they did, parents didn't have to pay for anything. And so the systems can work if we allow them, if we fund them enough to work, the systems can work. We can't have vertical approaches to development, everything must be done at the same time together, which is a lot more complex and harder, definitely. But like this little story of this child's tumor taken out, it started with a public school teacher, which back to your question on education, all these low cost informal education schools or systems don't really need qualified teachers. As long as you can basically read off a tab, you can stand in front of a class and, and take a class, right? But education is more than that. The pedagogy of you know, teaching and what a teacher does with and for children really, really matters. And I think a public system that works, you know, can speak to each other, can speak to different parts of the system and make sure that citizens are well taken care of. Wow. Crystal, I feel we should, um, that, that example that you just shared now, I feel we should publish it put it on some billboards around the country as well because it seems that it makes a case for universality in public services as a whole it's a really powerful example let me come back with a question here because it will be on the mind of some of our listeners that I I think I think we articulate well and we've done on this podcast especially in this interview the real problems we see of extraction of, of neoliberal economic model and the way that exploits people on this continent particularly women I wanted to ask you, Crystal, do you think enough as much attention is paid to the extraction that takes place within countries? For example, you know, the rising kind of billionaire class that we see on the African continent. Sometimes some of the conversations that, that Max and I have had, for example, is do we care enough about African billionaires as we do about global billionaires? Or is that not where the conversation needs to be? I'm not too sure that's where the conversation... I mean, it definitely needs to have conversation. But I think there's a careful balance in terms of not diverting public attention to African billionaires who... And you have to remember race, class as well in, in the inequality conversation, right? African billionaires mm. will never reach the type of billionaire, the type of white billionaire, let's be honest. Uh, Oxfam's really great at putting the numbers, but forgive me if I'm wrong, but I think Dangote is like 100 and something in the list of global billionaires. Like The fact that you're African means that you're completely locked out of certain spaces and certain avenues of money, whether those avenues are right or wrong. Um, and these are conversations I have with my sometimes capitalist friends here who are all about, you know, profit and making money. But in my head, I can't stop thinking, you know, it doesn't matter what you do, you will never get to that point. You will never get to the top 10 billionaires in the world. And so even even within the inequality, there is an inequality, if you know what I mean. Mm. And how dangerous it is to begin to turn the lens on individual African billionaires when we're trying to fight a system that is globally 
corrupt and it's globally inept and is clo- globally unjust. The idea of billionaires anywhere should not exist. Overlay that with race and you'll see at race and, and gender as well. As an African woman, there is no way you'd ever get to the type of billionaire in the US or Europe or global north in general. And so I'm not so sure how helpful an argument that could be, because if you create a global system that ensures that billionaires don't exist, billionaires don't exist anywhere in the world, if you get what I mean. It's the same with the conversations around corruption. Yes, we have a huge, huge problem of corruption. But if you put the corrupt numbers against what gets lost in a global unequal economic landscape, it's a pittance. And so the work has to be done in terms of transparency and anti-corruption work, definitely. However, and a big conversation must be had about a global economic divide and and unequal space, basically. That's really interesting because, you know, and that's a classic kind of global stereotype about Africa. Do you think Africa is one of, would you even put corruption in the, the top three problems? And do you think Africa you know, has a corruption problem that's somehow of a different order to other parts of the world? It is a massive issue because we're so close to it. But if you stand back, the bigger problem of an, a global economic governance system that was working against the continent, I think is a much bigger issue. If you look at the anti-corruption index, the transparency index, and you look at the world's most corrupt countries, they many at, um, most of the time will fall in the global south. But if you look at the illicit financial flows um, maps and look at where large sums of money through illicit financial flows in tax havens are situated, it's a complete opposite. All of those are in the global north, right? And so I question, you know, if it's just an issue of the politics of narrative and the power of language. To call it corruption here, but through illicit financial flows, which in itself as a terminology is very abstract and lofty for most people, but it's really theft. You're not paying your fair mm. share of tax in the place that you're operating in. And so I think there's a, it's what I you know, went to before, it's a divergence of of how we look at things and how we can hide behind big words and technical terms and language where illicit financial flows is really, to me, theft, um, just the same as corruption. And if you put those two side by side, only 5% of what Africa loses through illicit financial flows is through corruption, for example. 65% is through commercial activity. And that begins to paint a different picture. And so I wonder the role of the words that we choose to use has an impact on the way we see things and the fight that we have. Um, So yes, sitting in Kenya, being a citizen of Kenya, definitely corruption is a huge issue because it's an immediate, it's here, it's tangible, it's Mm. accessible in a way that I can understand it. Um, In terms of the largesse of how much is being taken out of our economy or not allowed to be in our economy, that's a much bigger issue and that's more global. But, you know, it's easier to attack what you can see. But slowly, I think the conversation and engagements around how we explain these things is changing. And hopefully people begin to see things differently. I mean, when we signed the new agreement with the World Bank, Kenyans went ham on their social media. But the conversation was don't give Kenyans money, don't give Kenya money because it's all going to be corrupt and we'll never see anything. I think the conversation should be let's look back 
and look at the debt that we're accruing and the conditionalities that is attached to all these agreements and how that's completely decimated public services and, and the way our government is run and actually is really deciding how our economies are run for us, right? Very interesting. Very interesting. Thank you for that, Crystal. And it's um, it's being here in, in Kenya in solidarity with you. It's very interesting to see that play out. I uh, I tweeted the other day uh, a picture of the front page of the East African newspaper from this weekend, which says Africa to the EU, do not treat us like vaccine beggars. And what was interesting, I mean, my tweet did relatively well for me, by the way, I haven't got as many Twitter followers as you, Crystal. Um, <laughs> it's really no need to show off. <laughs> it's okay, Max, it's okay. But look, what was interesting, I got, uh, you know, I got lots of tweets and uh, uh, retweets and, and likes. You know one. exactly how many retweets you got. You know, maybe, no, I'm not, it's 600, but who's counting? Um, but um, what was interesting to see, Crystal, was, you know, many, many, Many Africans, you know, some who I know, came back to say, no, we are beggars. That's how our uh, leaders are actually acting. And it's interesting to see. It's maybe what you say is that proximity to, to what you can see and taking that on, which which drives that narrative. But reframing the corruption narrative, I think, is very important to, to the act of decolonization and just a huge amounts that are lost and extracted from the continent in the name of these technical words is, is infuriating. Um, yeah. Crystal, I, we need to end the interview and I wanted to end with uh, something I picked up from the research we were doing just ahead of speaking to you. And uh, a couple of years ago, Oxfam released a report on inequality in Africa. And there's, you know, and, and there's a picture on Twitter of us presenting that report in South Africa uh, to folks at the World Economic Forum. And it was interesting to see, I know I sent you this just before the interview, and you say in your tweet, this really isn't good enough, Team Oxfam. Crystal, I know you're, we're friends and we're able to speak on a level, but, I, you know, your advice to us as Oxfam, but also as this sector, you know, what should we be doing better to truly be in solidarity with, with, with movements fighting economic justice on this, on this continent? I tweet a lot, and sometimes I forget <laughs> that people read this stuff. Um, I think the first thing is to recognize your privilege and your power. Recognize that you can never be and will never be a, a national civil society organization. There's a different role for organizations like Oxfam. Um, there's a different role in making sure that you hold doors open into spaces that other people, other civil society organizations, activists, citizens are not able to reach. It's keeping those doors open to be able to provide space in spaces that you can have space and voice for people who are usually most likely most times left unheard, invisible, unseen. But in these spaces, the policies that they create, the frameworks that they create have such a direct impact on the lives of the people who are not able to be in those spaces. And so it's knowing that you cannot be the voice. It's knowing that there are people who can speak for themselves. It's knowing that inclusion is expensive. It's knowing that this is not just a job for so, so many people. This is about the quality of life for themselves, for their families, for their communities, for their countries, for their region, for their continent. And I think it's not being in competition with, you know, organizations, activists, individuals that are fighting for their countries, for their communities, for their people, but being able to support them in ways that make sense for them and being able to listen a whole lot more to them and not deciding what help they need and how they need it, I think is, yeah, I think that's, that's, that's the role that international organizations should be taking. 
I, I'm sure, Crystal, many people will be listening to that answer very, very carefully. So thank you. And thank you for being honest yes. as well. And, um, you know, I, I think that advice is being taken on board and has been taken on board, especially about realizing the role that we need to play. So uh, thank you for being honest and keep being honest and keep with those tweets as well. They need to be they need to be heard. That's great, Crystal. Thank you very much. And thanks for a fantastic interview. We really appreciate it great admirer of your work and just some amazing fascinating uh, discussions so thanks for taking the time to talk to us thanks thanks max thanks Nicole. Max, what a wonderful interview that was with Crystal. And um, I mean, I've, I've made notes here. There's there's what, African Economic Hunger Games and the lived experience of that? Structural adjustment on Red Bull. That was a great line. What, what wonderful quotes. And digging deeper into a couple of the uh, of the themes uh, Crystal went into, I found, I think, most interesting what Crystal had to say about African billionaires amid the billionaire class. I think my dear Kenyan capitalist friends will be listening with great interest. Yeah, and I think linked to that was her point about corruption, how corruption is important, but it's dwarfed by the scale of kind of illicit financial flows, if you like, the kind of yeah. the tax havens, the extractive industries. But, and that reminded me, I was at a meeting a few years back with an Indian academic, and he said he, he got really angry by the use of language. So in, in Africa, we talk about theft and corruption. But when it's global, we talk about illicit financial flows or tax havens. And he was. He basically <laughs> said, you know, to his mind, that the most corrupt nation on earth is Switzerland because they are at the w- center of this web of theft and extraction. Um, and yeah, I think that's important to understand. Yeah, and I think it's it's such an interesting topic to dig deep into because there is a link as well, isn't there, Max, between those elites taking advantage within African and across all countries, really, and the global extraction that's taking place. But I think what's very clear to me is that you know the global north and certain rich countries focusing so much on corruption, that also is a tool to cover up, really, their own theft. Well, it, it can be a way of blaming Africa for its own problems, but that doesn't mean it's not true at the same time. You know, corruption is very much a lived experience. But yes, it, there are very, very big external reasons why Africa remains poor, corruption notwithstanding. Absolutely. And look, um, both in the last episode we had with Grieve Chalwa and this episode with, with Crystal, I think one very clear theme that's come out is just how the state, it doesn't exist in the way that we would understand the state in many African countries. And I, I loved, I found very moving that quite exceptional story that Crystal shared about the young student who had who had the tumour and the real power of public services. Yeah, and I, th- I think both can be true at the same time. You know, public services in Africa are hugely underfunded and underinvested because of structural adjustment. But they are also at a level of ambition that our, you know, rich countries just didn't even think about then. So, you know, when Britain was as poor as Kenya or Ethiopia, we were quite happy for maybe one in 10 children to get to finish school and they'd be the children of rich families. Whereas at least countries like Ethiopia are now trying to uh, invest in universal primary education. You know, there's, there's an ambition yes. there, which uh, is impressive, but still huge gaps and another decade of austerity would make that so much worse. Somewhat of a, of a hopeful note to end on. And Max, I can't help when you were talking about ambition there to think about, I mean, having all girls and, and boys in school is a kind of economic ambition we need, not sending billionaires to space, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Guys, we're trying to do something different on Equals. Thank you very, very much for joining us. We're trying to share the stories that aren't being heard. Do tweet, do share 
uh, the episode your favorite quotes. Uh, we've got some cracking episodes coming up on aid, on, on supermarkets and their power in, in global supply chains. And I think I'm most excited about an episode we'll be doing on buses. Yeah, yeah, buses, that's going to be great. You know, the power of public. I mean, my stepdad will be chuffed. He will be as a bus driver. He'll be, he'll be, he'll be listening in. So yeah, looking forward to that one. It's going to be great. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.